Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Pandemic, book three of the Infected Trilogy. Written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler. Performed by Phil Giganti. Pandemic is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash pandemic. Chapter 5 Duty Sitting on the couch in her living room, Margaret felt newly aware of how much she had fallen apart. Clarence sat on her left, as if he were really still by her side. That made him a liar. She wanted to hate him. He tightened the tie, dabbed the forehead, and once again looked like he'd just stepped out of the pages of Government Agent Quarterly. In a chair across from them sat Murray Longworth, director of the Department of Special Threats, or, as people in the know tended to call it, the second most powerful agency you've never heard of. A black cane lay across Murray's lap, the handle atop it a twisted, brass, double-helix shape of DNA. Murray Longworth hadn't aged well. He looked frail, as if somehow he'd bathed in Detroit's nuclear glow and was slowly melting like a candle left sitting on a heater. His dark gray suit was a little too big, Margaret guessed it had been tailored for him several years ago, several pounds ago. A thick man in a black suit, a suit so indiscernible from Clarence's, the two men might as well have been wearing matching uniforms, stood behind Murray's chair. A flesh-colored coil ran from a tiny hidden earpiece to somewhere behind his neck. The man stared straight ahead, seeing everything and looking at nothing. Three men in suits. She hadn't bothered changing. Her sweatpants had two small holes in the left knee and an avocado stain on the right thigh. She hadn't showered in three days. Margaret wondered if she smelled. Murray forced a smile, his old, wrinkled face cracking like a windshield hit by a brick. Hello, Margaret, he said. You look like a bag of assholes. The man's penchant for pleasantries hadn't changed. And you look like an ad for a convalescent home. Margaret said. Isn't there a mandatory retirement age in government work? Another smile, this one genuine. I wish I could retire. My wrinkled old ass should be in a fishing boat in Florida, catching redfish and croakers. The smile faded. Not everybody gets that choice. Margaret felt a wave of guilt. Murray Longworth was over seventy possibly even 75. He worked ridiculous hours for a department that barely existed on paper, a department tasked with anticipating and defeating the country's next biological nightmare. He was right. He should be retired. And yet he served every day while she sat on her behind and hid from the world. She crossed her left leg over her right, a move that would have looked professional had she been wearing a dress. Murray, what do you want? He pulled a page-sized brown envelope from inside his jacket. Nothing I am about to tell you leaves this room. Yesterday there was an incident involving the Los Angeles, a nuclear attack submarine that was part of Operation Wolfhead. Operation Wolfhead? The task force assigned the duty of finding and recovering any wreckage from the alien construct that had crashed into Lake Michigan five years earlier. That construct had come to be known as the Orbital, because when discovered, it had been in a low geostationary orbit that defied the accepted laws of physics.
Margaret had known about the task force, as did most of the public. The government couldn't hide the fact that they'd moved warships onto the Great Lakes, but she hadn't known a nuclear sub was involved. Neither apparently had Clarence. I thought the Los Angeles had been scrapped, he said. And how could you get it through the St. Lawrence Seaway without being seen? He sounded annoyed, maybe even a little humiliated at being left out of the big boy loop. Mr. Super Agent wasn't privy to all the secrets, it seemed, and that fact burned. Murray tapped the edge of the envelope against his cane. We converted her into a search vehicle assigned with scouring the bottom. Slipped her through the St. Lawrence with a fake superstructure that hit the sail and outline. Looked like just another tanker. What matters is that for five years, the crew of the Los Angeles found nothing of note. Six days ago, the sub's commander reported a significant discovery. Two days ago, the flotilla lost contact with the sub. Last night, the Los Angeles fired torpedoes at and sank the guided missile destroyer Forrest Sherman and the Coast Guard cutter Stratton. Clarence sat forward. Sank. Heavy casualties. Murray nodded. Two hundred and forty-four crew from the Sherman are dead, fifty-seven from the Stratton. Seven more from the Truxton, another destroyer which was hit but remains afloat. We're assuming the entire crew of the Los Angeles perished. That's another hundred and twenty. In total, four hundred and twenty-eight dead or lost and presumed dead. Considering the number of wounded, we're still adding to the list. Clarence sagged back into the couch. Margaret suddenly wanted to go back upstairs and sit down at her computer. She could look at the blogs and read the comments, see if people were still talking about her. Anything was better than hearing this. Murray kept tapping the envelope against his cane, a rat-tat-tat beat that paced his words. A third destroyer, the Pinckney, took out the Los Angeles. The Truxton remains afloat, although it can't do much. Right now, the survivors of the sunken ships are all on board the Pinckney and on the Carl Brashear, a naval cargo ship converted for orbital-related research. Clarence's face wrinkled in indignation. You didn't evac the wounded to mainland hospitals? That's not... Margaret's left hand found Clarence's knee. An automatic gesture. A way for her to tell her man, relax. Even though he apparently wasn't her man anymore. The wounded can't leave. No one there can. Clarence blinked. Then he got it. Any of those survivors, wounded or not, could be infected. He turned back to Murray. The media... Clarence said. What's the cover story? How do you explain the battle? We don't. The flotilla was in the upper middle part of Lake Michigan. The shore was 25 miles away to both the east and west, 100 to the north and 200 to the south. Nobody on land saw a thing. The battle occurred in a no-fly zone, so there was zero civilian air traffic. The sailors themselves won't be leaking the story because right now no one leaves the task force for the rather obvious reason that somehow escaped you. Hundreds dead. Just like that. A U.S. ship sinking other U.S. ships. Margaret knew the infection could make that happen. Could take over a host's brain and make him do horrible things. Cellulose tests. Any positives? 
She had to ask, even though she didn't want to know the answer. Inside a host's body, the infection built organic scaffolding and structures from cellulose, a substance produced by plants that was not found in the human body anywhere outside of the digestive tract. She and Amos had invented a cellulose test so accurate it left almost no doubt. If victims produced a positive result, it was already too late to save them. Two. Both from corpses. Positive tests. Just the thought of it made Margaret sick. The infection was back. Murray offered Margaret the envelope. She reached for it, an automatic movement. Then she pulled her hand back. You don't want me, she said, her voice small and weak. I... This is all horrible, but I put in my time. I can't go through this again. Murray's lip curled up ever so slightly, a snarling old man who wasn't used to hearing the word no. Worst loss of life in a naval engagement since Vietnam, and it happened right here at home. Three ships destroyed, one damaged, about three billion dollars worth of military assets gone, and we have no idea what really happened. So pardon my indelicate way of speaking my mind, Montoya, but look at the motherfucking pictures. He was going to yell at her? Like she was some intern who would jump at his every word? Get Frank Cheng to look at them. He's your fair-haired boy. Murray nodded. So you know Cheng's the lead scientist. I see you haven't completely tuned out. She huffed. It's not like Cheng makes it hard. He probably has reporters on speed dial so he can make sure his name gets out there. Send him to your task force. He might even bring along a camera crew. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Murray's eyes closed in exasperation. Cheng's desire to be recognized as a genius clearly rubbed the director the wrong way. Clarence reached out and took the envelope. Murray slowly sat back. Even that minor motion seemed to cause him pain, and stared at Margaret. His fingertips played with the brass double helix atop his cane. 
Operation Wolfhead's primary research facility is on Black Manitou Island in Lake Superior. That's where Ching is. He made the case that he should stay there to provide continuity for the entire process, as opposed to being the first person to examine the bodies. Margaret couldn't hold back a smirk. She should have known Cheng's desire to be quoted stopped at the edge of any actual danger. What a surprise. I guess you get what you pay for, Murray. The old man's wrinkled hands tightened on the cane. I wanted to pay you. You said no. But that doesn't matter now because I'm not the one asking this time. I'm here on direct orders from President Blackman. She wants you on site immediately. That numb feeling returned. For the second time in Margaret's life, a sitting president of the United States had asked for her, by name. She'd answered that call once, for Gutierrez. Look where that had gotten her, gotten him, gotten everyone. She heard a rattle of paper. She looked to her left. Clarence had taken the photos out of the slim envelope. He'd looked at them and was now offering them to her. Margaret still didn't take them. She knew what would happen if she did. Printed pictures, Murray? With your black budget, you can't afford a fancy tablet or something? Nothing electronic. Not out here, anyway. It's a lot harder to make paper go viral. She thought it odd to hear someone that old use a term like go viral. Most people Murray's age barely understood what the Internet was. Clarence put the pictures in her lap. She looked down, an instant reaction saw the one on top, and couldn't look away. It was a photo of a drawing, a man sitting in a corner, covered in some kind of bulky blanket. No, not one man, two, maybe even three. There was only one head, but sticking out from the blanket she saw four hands. The original drawing looked water-stained. Whoever had drawn it had done so quickly, yet there was no mistaking the artist's skill. The subject's open eyes looked lifeless, stared out into nothing. Why were the men hidden under the blanket? No, it wasn't a blanket at all. It was a membrane of some kind, wrapped around dead bodies, parts of it attached to the wall, to the floor. It wasn't an impressionist's take. The artist had seen this, or at least thought he'd seen it. Murray, what the hell is this? One of the bodies we recovered from the Los Angeles had that on her person. The artwork is good enough that we were able to confirm visual ID. The subject of the drawing is Ensign Paul Duchovny, who served on board the sub. Obviously, there are others in there with him, but since we can't see their faces, we can't identify them. Did you send divers into the sub? No one has gone near it. The sub is off-limits until we get our analysis team set up. It's 900 feet deep, so people can't go down without specialized equipment. On top of that, there's a radiation leak. We don't even know if it's safe to enter the wreck. Right now, all our intel is coming from UUVs. Margaret looked up. UUVs? Clarence answered. Unmanned underwater vehicles. Sometimes autonomous like a robot but most of the time they're controlled from a person on a surface ship. Margaret again looked down at the picture. Who drew this? Lieutenant Candace Walker. She escaped the sub, made it to the surface. Unfortunately, she died before divers could get her to medical attention. 
She was just as crazy as Dawsey. Cut off her own arm with a reciprocal saw just below the right elbow. She used her belt for a tourniquet and cauterized the wound, but it wasn't enough. She escaped the sub by wearing an SEIE suit, a bulky thing that lets submariners rise up without suffering pressure effects. We think her tourniquet came off when she was exiting the sub, or maybe while she ascended. Since she was in the suit, she had no way of tying the belt off again. Her picture is next. Margaret flipped to the next page, then hissed in a breath. A dead girl wearing battered, blood-streaked, dark blue coveralls. A lieutenant in the Navy based on her insignia. A highly trained adult, although her face looked all of eighteen. The girl's right arm was a horrid sight. Seared flesh and protruding blackened bone. Extensive blood loss made her skin extremely pale. She had a bruise under her right eye and a long cut on her left temple. Margaret thought of the first time she met Perry Dawsey. He had been a walking nightmare. A massive, naked man, covered in third-degree burns from a fire that had also melted away his hair, leaving his scalp covered with fresh, swelling blisters. His own blood had baked flaky dry on his skin. A softball-sized pustule on his left collarbone streamed black rot down his wide chest. His knee had been shredded by a bullet fired from the gun of Dew Phillips. And worst of all, even more disturbing than the fact that Perry clutched his own severed penis in a tight fist, the look on his face, those lips caught between a smile and a scream, curled back to show well-cared-for teeth that reflected the winter sun in a wet white blaze. Perry, mangled almost beyond recognition. This girl, correction, this naval officer, much the same. Margaret shuddered, imagining a saw-toothed blade as a buzzing blur, jagged points scraping free a shred of skin or a curl of bone with each pass. Did the autopsy confirm she died from blood loss? Murray frowned. You've been out of the game longer than I thought, Doc. We didn't do an autopsy yet. The Los Angeles had a mission to recover pieces of the orbital. You remember the orbital, right? The thing that made the most infectious disease we've ever seen? A disease that turned people into psychopaths? The thing that made little monsters that tried to open a goddamn gate to another goddamn world? The thing that forced us to nuke the Motor City to stop that gate from opening? Margaret felt her own lip curl into a sneer. Yes, Murray, I so need you to fucking remind me about the fucking orbital. She felt a hand on her arm, Clarence quietly telling her to ease down. Murray leaned forward. He spoke quietly, trying to control his rage. Apparently, you do need a reminder. Before Lieutenant Walker died, she admitted to sabotaging the engine room of the Los Angeles. She also admitted to shooting and killing two men. Her corpse and the second body, that of Petty Officer Charles Petrovsky, are in a biosafety level four facility inside the Carl Brashear. They are infected with the same goddamn disease that could have wiped us all out five years ago, that made the crew of the Los Angeles fire on U.S. ships. So no, genius, we haven't done an autopsy yet. For that, we need the best. We need you. Margaret cleared her throat. She'd asked a stupid question and been properly slapped down for it. You said the Los Angeles found something? Look at the last photo. 
It was a photo of an object she didn't recognize, some kind of beat-up cylinder sitting on the gray, lifeless lake bottom. The diver, or photographer, had rested a ruler close by. The cylinder was about five inches long, two and a half inches wide. It was frayed in places, as if it were woven from a synthetic material, like fiberglass, maybe. Detritus and some kind of mold had taken root within the fibers, making the object look fuzzy, almost alive. This is from the orbital? Maybe. An unmanned probe discovered it six days ago. Five days ago, it was brought on board the Los Angeles using the most rigorous decontamination and BSL-4 procedures known to man. Clarence took the photo. Not rigorous enough, apparently. Murray nodded. Three days ago, the Los Angeles's commanding officer reported problematic behavior among the crew. We're sure that was the beginning of the infection incident. Margaret could only imagine how horrible that must have been. A submarine, hundreds of feet below the surface. Those people had been trapped in there, nowhere to run. Clarence handed her back the photo. She stared at it, amazed that she was probably looking at an actual piece of alien hardware. The most significant discovery in human history. A discovery that had already delivered death and promised much more of the same. This object... Is it now on board the Carbrashier? Murray shook his head. It remains in the Los Angeles. The sub was struck amidships. The object was in the forward compartment near the bow. That area appears to be flooded, but otherwise intact. We're still dealing with fallout from the battle. Tomorrow or the next day, we'll figure out how to go down and get it out. They were going to bring it up. Of course they were. Nuke it, she said. It shocked her to hear those words come out of her mouth, but it was the only way to be sure. Massive ecological damage was a small price to pay for ending the threat. Do it now. Today, Murray, before it gets out. Clarence cleared his throat, a tick of his when he was about to politely contradict her. <clears throat> Margot, that's a big step. The biggest. And it's not like we have a nuclear torpedo. They'd have to figure out how to deliver a nuke and put it right on the money. Her eyes never leaving Longworth's. They don't have to deliver it because it's already there. Right, Murray? There's a nuke on board the Los Angeles. Probably about five megatons, enough to completely sterilize everything in a hundred-yard radius. The corners of his mouth turned up in a small, wry grin. The master was proud of his pupil. He rubbed his jaw, looked off. Margaret sensed that he had already suggested nuking the site, maybe suggested it to the president herself, and he'd been overruled. Destroying it isn't an option. If we grab it now, at least we have a chance at containment. He was a puppet speaking the words of his controllers. This isn't about containment. The military wants it. They want to see if we can get some genuine alien technology. Great choice on the risk-benefit analysis, Murray. He shifted in his seat. Spare me a lecture, Doc. It's not my choice. I've got my orders. We need to know how that object affected the crew. Is this the same thing we saw before, or a new phase in the disease's development? Finding that answer could literally save the world. Margaret looked down at the pictures. She tidied them up, 
then slid them back into the envelope. She held the envelope out to Murray. I already saved the world. Twice. I can't, Murray. I just can't. He struggled to stand. He leaned on the cane, took a step closer to her. His eyes burned with fury. She could see his two white dentures. You hide in this house like a coward. You've seen horrible things. You've done your part. So have I. So has Clarence. So have thousands of other people, and they keep on doing their part. You have a knack for understanding this thing, Margaret. You are the only reason we stopped it last time. You. So how about you pull your head out of your ass, put your pity party to bed, pack a bag and come with me because I don't care if you save the world once, twice, or fifty fucking times. He shook the cane head at her, the ceiling light glinting dully off the brass helix. Your job isn't done. You got the short end of the stick, Margaret. Maybe you're not a soldier, but you man the wall just like the rest of us. Not a soldier. She looked at Clarence. For a moment she wondered if he'd talked to Murray earlier, if they'd set that up together. But the look on his face said otherwise. Her husband was ashamed he'd said that to her. She loved him. If this thing got out, he would die. So would she. So would everyone. You got the short end of the stick, Margaret. Murray was right. She hated him for it. I'll go. Clarence stood. We'll be ready in 30 minutes. Hell no. The area is possibly contagious. There's no benefit to putting you at risk. I can't take seeing you every day. I can barely even look at you right now. Clarence started to say something, but Murray clonked the bottom of his cane on the floor. Stop this. You two handle your relationship issues on your own time. Otto is going with you. She turned on the old man. Hold on just a damn second. If you want me there, then you... He's coming. Doc, you are the only choice for this job. But forgive me for being an insensitive prick when I say that you might not be playing with a full deck. Otto has been taking care of you for years. He's the best qualified to keep you focused. Great. So you're assigning a babysitter? I'll assign a midget with a whip if that's what it takes to keep you from reading blog posts about yourself for 15 hours a day. Margaret fell silent. Murray knew all about how far she'd fallen. Of course he knew. Clarence had probably told him. Murray reached out and took the envelope from her. Get packed. A car will be here for you in 15 minutes. You have been listening to Pandemic, book three of the Infected Trilogy by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler. Performed by Phil Giganti. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. 
Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.